and one. Welcome to the Community Hotline, presented by 88 Real Estate Media for the community, by the community. I am your host, Mr. Bob Fang, and today we have community member Dr. Calvin Sun. Why don't you introduce yourself, good sir? Good to be here. Thanks for having me. My name is Calvin. I am a emergentologist slash ER doctor slash emergency physician, however you want to cut it. And I work per diem, which means I work whenever and wherever I want, all the time, if I don't want to, none of the time based in New York City, born and raised in Manhattan. And I am also the founder and CEO of the Monsoon Diaries, where uh, every three to four weeks, I go on an international trip, taking people, random strangers around the world uh, for a weekend or a couple of days before going back to work. I love it, I love it, I love it. So basically, you know, if anyone ever goes into the doctor, I mean, the, the ER, they're probably gonna run into you, right? If they're in the Manhattan I hope area. not. I hope none of you ever see me because if you do see me, something went wrong. Got it, got it, okay. Well, let's dive into the first topic of the day, which is going to be money. Uh, but before I forget, rules of the game, uh, there is a no cursing show, so if you do curse, uh, you will get a strike one, a strike two, and then a strike three, and you will get booted out. <laughs> one of the hardest things I ever had to do. <laughs> I'm a New Yorker, that's, all right, I'll do my best. Challenge accepted. Yes, yes. Okay. Well, as long as you're trying, right? Um, and I know you're a betting man. <laughs> yes, I am. People would know. Let's talk about money then. Uh, tell us, what is money? You know? What is it? It's a concept. concept. Money is a concept. It's just, it's just another word you can even say because the idea of money is whatever we assign value to a piece of paper. That's really it. To say that that dollar bill in your pocket or that coin is really worth its weight in gold. It's just a piece of paper that's printed out. And we assign that value and trust in that piece of paper to mean something. But anything can happen like a pandemic or the economy crashes or stock market crashes or anarchy happens. And that piece of paper mean value differently. It's so arbitrary. So you have to wonder by taking a step back, what is money? And what value do you assign to whatever you consider is money? Mm, I love that. Did you, uh, has your experience with money changed since you were in high school to now? I mean, we, none of us have ever really told us what money really is, right? We grew up believing that dollar bills and hundred dollar bills and these money was meant something and you know, it, it was valuable, right? But before money, you have to wonder what would do we use before money? It's not like God created earth or, you know, the big bang happened and out came money. It, whatever you want to believe in, there wasn't it wasn't around since the beginning. Right. Uh, it, value. It's we used to exchange like rabbit fur with moleskin with you know caribou meats and venison, and that was what value was. But eventually, someone was like, we need to standardize this. Like, who's to say that you're you know you're you might be a vegetarian, so the value of caribou meat might be different to you, but it still might be valuable to someone else. So how do you like assign that? So they had to standardize it, just like what we standardize time and you know, inches and centimeters. So it used to be gold and gold is valuable because you can actually use gold for something. It's a very, it's a nice, you know, strong, sturdy, reliable material. But, you know, after a while, people found it difficult. Like if you pay off your cell phone bill, it's not like people with bags of gold come to the bank and then drop out bags of gold. Like, oh yeah, you know, Bob paid his cell phone bill and here's the value in gold that he paid on the cell phone bill. So you can use it. Cell phone company takes the gold and 
you know, that used to be the case, but then they were like, no, it's not practical. So they turned it into paper cash. But then after a while, paper cash, right? So it wasn't people bringing bags of cash to your cell phone company, Bob paid his cell phone bill, here's a bag of cash. They don't right. do that, anymore. that's electronic signals. It's literally like, like little digital signals. And that's why hackers and cryptocurrency exist because they are assigning different values and we have to trust it in order to give it value. But all of a sudden we may just the collective hill, you have to commit, convince a whole group of people to say, it's not worth it anymore. And that could actually work. And that is a whole big thing about that, that really changes your idea of what is valuable. I love that. When did you, was there like a moment in your life uh, that where your mind shift kind of changed? I mean, you travel a lot. So different value of currencies in different countries, you kind of get the idea. And, you know, especially like Brazil is like a really good example where it was literally in bankruptcy because they were trying to print more cash so that more people had cash. But when you do that, you're lowering and you're losing the value of that cash you already have. Mm. So a pair of sunglasses might cost $20, but if you print out a million more $20 bills on the market, there's so many more of them that value of that $20 bill goes down. So that sunglasses the next week costs $100 because now you have more $20 bills. So right. what Brazil did was they actually created a completely new currency from scratch, from the peso to the real. And so we're gonna start all over again and we're gonna standardize it and we're just gonna print this limited amount and you have to exchange your pesos for the real and they stuck to that. And that's how they saved the economy. Totally like arbitrary, we even say like scam the entire population to making them believe that something else was worth more than another, but it's the same paper, just a different name. Right. Have, Planet Money is a really good podcast that discusses this. This American Life also discusses this. It is a lot of things that we even do right now that you don't even realize. People copy homework, right? I used to like sell my homework answers for $1 a piece. Then you know what? Then I was like, fuck it. <laughs> I, I planned that out, but I was just like, I don't want, I don't want people to be copying all this stuff. I'm really stressed out. So I raised it to $2. So now my, it was the same homework. It was just Xerox copies of like things I took like two years ago. Right. Right. right, right. Oh. I love it. I love it. Okay. That's a great example. I don't think people understand that, you know, like, like the Brazilian example you said, they just made it up, right? They're like, all right, today we're going to do this now. And then you know, we're going to get with it or well, you're not. Um, I like, I was researching your story and uh, I mean, anyone can find it on the internet, but there was a, I think one of the biggest things that people always ask is like, you know, certainly around your parents and about how your dad passed away when you were 19. Um, so I guess my question would be, you know, I know that you had to kind of plan like two funerals for that moment. Uh, and I think, you know, that's something that a lot of youth, they don't really think about their parents dying or, you know, death in general is kind of like something like they don't really think about, but you haven't experienced it so young, I guess, you know, what were some of like, just around the, the topic of money, what were some like, I guess, costs in planning a funeral for your dad? And what is like the emotional toll, you know, just to kind of maybe prepare some of the people that, you know, have aging parents right now? Well, let's segue to terms of the word cost, like what is the cost in terms of monetary value or the emotional and physical cost on the family and your mental health when something happens to you that you didn't prepare for. So prior to my dad dying or uh, passing away, I was okay in terms of having a roof over my head. I was in college, halfway through college, and I was grateful to a great education having been provided that, but also like didn't have the emotional language to understand and process grief or despair or mental health because you know my mom and dad did not equip me with that language and i had you know asian parent like the typical asian parents i'm not gonna 
speak on behalf of everyone's guardians out there who make me different, but mine were very typical in that they provided me, you know, things that I, you know, am very grateful for education and security, but they didn't provide me the emotional language that I needed to process my feelings. And when my dad died, it was right after an argument and he went on a treadmill to blow off some steam and had a sudden heart attack and dropped dead. And none of us prepared for it. And when that happened, my mom was going through the symptoms of taking so many antidepressants at the time for, I guess, marrying too young, according to her, and having me too early, according to her. Uh, she One of the side effects of having antidepressants, especially after a, a car accident on top of that, that she endured, that trauma ended up causing her to develop Parkinson's disease at a really young age. And then she got diagnosed like like literally the week after. It was like, oh, you have Parkinson's. We knew that was coming, but that was like a double whammy for me. And then the whole cost of, as you said, like planning to two funerals, emotional, the you know physical costs, you know, I have to send my mom away to her parents, let her take care of it because I can't take care of her now. And my dad didn't leave a will on top of that. So he, because he never thought he was going to die right. anytime soon. So we had nothing. And he was kind of poorly managing this property and all that stuff at the time. So we lost everything. I lived in a frat house during the summer of 2006 after my dad died because I was like, I don't know where I'm going to live. Uh, my mom was living, luckily, with her grandparents in Queens. And then we really worked hard to try to restart all over again. I worked hard to start over again. And I, I haven't talked about money yet. It was the whole idea of, like, how am I going to restart my life? The cost to that, my soul, my mental health, my emotional and you know intellectual and spiritual well-being, you know, to come out of this okay. That's when I created a new family. A bunch of my friends came out of nowhere. This French girl named Amelia that was ended up becoming one of my best friends. You know, was visiting New York at the time. She worked business one summer. She swooped in and literally saved my life, to which I'm very grateful. And I tell her that every day. And you know, and oh, that was by the way after my girlfriend broke up with me at the funeral. That happened, right? Because she said that uh, this was a little too much for her to handle for her first relationship. That was her first, uh, like serious relationship. So, you know, that was a cost to her. And you know, it, it's it's just like I didn't even talk about money yet because you have to think about all the costs that can't be quantified that right. I had to really regain. But luckily for me, I had a, gr a great group of support network that just came out of the woodwork. I still you know, have it up on my Zanga when I wrote about it, how people just came out and take, took taking care of me, to which I cannot assign a cost. That the the things that they did for me is has no value, really. It's it's in unmeasurable value, if anything. And I too, I'm so grateful for that. And then if you wanna talk about money, yeah, the funerals are expensive. So, uh, we had to dip into savings and, uh, you know, we had to see what was left over and we had to fight the banks to get, you know, the rights to our property back and, you know, whatever my dad's was in a state and he owed a lot of debt. So we had to assume that as well and try to, you know, figure out we had to sell a, a house that we didn't, you know, in Connecticut, which, you know, I'm really grateful that these are first world problems. I'm privileged to have that, but also we were admired in a lot of debt and I was living in a frat house. So it's everyone has been dealt with a deck of cards and I acknowledge that I have had a lot of privilege growing up but at the same time you know i've also lacked a lot of things that i had to make up for after he died so it's a very complicated process so i guess i mean i guess more practical than uh what, what would you say you know let's say someone's you know parents died you know what what, what what are the next 90 days looking like you know planning the funeral and everything like can you kind of give like a game plan so but i feel like it's, it's unique right no one really I, I, I don't i don't wish this upon anybody but it happens, right? The people die. And that's actually the big theme of like life in general. Like you never know when things like this like could happen. Like a pandemic. We even saw a pandemic coming, right? For many months. 
We even like knew by statistical historical models that a 1918 Spanish flu was overdue for a century. And we had H1N1 Ebola and yet it still happens. And we were like caught off guard. So yeah, life can happen. That's why you should live now rather than wait around. It's like, oh yeah, I'll, you know, I'll travel, you know, I'll live my best life after I graduate college, after I get a job, after I get a promotion, after I have a wife and kids. And by then you got a wife and, or a husband or partner and kids, you can't do any of that anymore anyway you have to wait until you're retired and old but then it's too late to backpack and live your life so you you have to live now because any moment somebody could die or you get hit by a car or get cancer or you know god forbid a pandemic happens and you can't travel even if you want to so yeah that's that's why it's important so the first 90 days is you got to figure out you know how to get your loved ones out of the the body right if you're that's just lack of better word out and process it, whether you want to bury it, you want to cremate it, you got to get a funeral home to uh, work with the hospital to get the body. Um, the funeral home usually takes care of everything. Uh, but if you're kind of intimidated by it, a social worker usually assigned to your case, if somebody dies in the emergency room or in the hospital, would offer assistance. But usually you just pick a, a funeral home and they take care of everything. All you have to do is, you know, make a few requests if you want in terms of like program and, you know, events and if you want to do a service and then you just show up. And whether you want a lot of people or very few people, they take care of the invitations and then they give you a bill at the end and you you do your best to pay it off or uh, you don't do the bells and whistles and you do the cheapest amount possible and you don't do a service and you just bury and do a private service even. So, and then the burying and you have to pick a, a cemetery or a memorial gravesite or any something where they will take the ashes from the funeral home or the body from the funeral home and then take care of that. So. Um, there are these companies in place that make a business out of making it as easy as possible for you. Got it. Okay. So just kind of breaking it down then, like, let's say your loved one dies um, in the hospital or like in your home and ambulance would pick up the body. And then basically you just call up a funeral home and they, and they would just basically do all the arrangements. They pick, they give you options on like which cemetery is available, how much the pricing is and all that. Yeah. This got heavy quick, but that's pretty much it. <laughs> Well, you know, you're a Scorpio, right? I mean, I think this is like real knowledge. Like, Sagittarius cusp. So the Sagittarius in me is like, just start off a little bit. But yeah, I get I get deep pretty quickly. So Scorpio then comes. Um, what, so I guess what what were the what are some what are the costs like number wise? I think the biggest cost of all was to figure out how to stay in college. That was the the biggest hurdle for me. The, the funeral cost is a couple thousand dollars. That's a lot for a lot of people. But if you want to go to a couple hundred, then you get, you know, bare bones, you know, just a, I think a burial or, but then like, you know, it depends also the city you're in. New York City is pretty expensive. So real estate is much more at a premium than if you were in the rural middle of nowhere uh, with much more real estate and land. So I can't speak to, you know, the actual costs. It really depends on where you are. And plus right. the state tax and the tax on top of that, you know, and the, the cost of the hospital stay and, the cost of the barrel fee, the cost of, you know, whether your insurance would even cover it, whether you have life insurance, whether they left anything in their state to cover for funeral costs as part of their life insurance. Like that is all stuff that really depends on person by person, parent by parent, guardian by guardian. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. So your, your biggest concern was how, how, so how did you stay in college after all that? So I was already student council vice president, or I was pretty high up in student council. And I was also president of the Asian American Alliance or was going to become president of the Asian American Alliance. Um, 
actually, sorry, this is summer 2006. So I was already the director of campus events on student council. I was being groomed to being president of the class or vice president of the class the year after. Uh, I was vice president of the Asian American Alliance. Uh, I was a, you know, a, a board member and you know, dancer and, uh, and break dancer and raw elements, the dance crew. Uh, I was a instructor and senior bartender at the Columbia School of Mixology. So I was involved in a lot of stuff. And I was kind of integral in the administration, especially when they were getting prepared for a hunger strike that was about to happen uh, related to like ethnic studies and things that were going on in campus that were really like, you know, problematic and, you know, to which I was part of. And I was wearing two hats, right? My vice president of Asian American Alliance, I was fighting for people of color. And as an activist, I wanted ethnic studies as part of the core curriculum. I was concerned about expansion that wasn't very responsible and the use of eminent domain into, you know, black and brown neighborhoods, you know, trying to have them at a seated table. Knowing that you can't fight expansion and gentrification all the time, like it's gonna happen, but like, how do we make it work for the people instead of against the people? Uh, having a setting a timeline for a responsible expansion, you know, that was all happening in two, you just look it up. I mean, 2007 to 2008 in Colombia was like a big deal. Uh, one of my former girlfriends was one of the hunger strikers, the six hunger strikers that year. And on top of that, on the other side, I had to wear another hat. I was student council. I was representing the entire student body. And the student body just did not want to have a hunger strike necessarily. They wanted to not have to shut down the campus. Uh, majority of people did may not have understood what ethnic studies were or why it mattered to, you know, to care about gentrification and eminent domain expansion. In fact, some of them may wanted them extra real estate for Columbia. Like, oh, I have to go back and forth and I have to do, do both things. So when I when this happened to me in the summer 2006 before my junior year, you know, I, I was not on financial aid. My dad was barely scraping by to pay for my tuition. But now he had no will. I had needed financial aid because my mom is disabled. So she could only survive on disability checks from the government having Parkinson's. So I had nothing. Uh, my only job was bartending. My bartending, I had to like kick it to overdrive. But how do I pay for the initial sum? You know, I have to work like 20, 30 bartending shifts to pay for that, but that's already been like three months, four months in, I'll be passed overdue. So I applied for financial aid late and I cited like extenuating circumstances. And then I even told the truth is like, I am, you know, class council or student council, you know, director of campus events and or into or intercollegiate liaison. Uh, I'm about to be vice president. I'm also vice president of the Asian American Alliance. One of my former girlfriends is gonna be one of the hunger strikers that you've been hearing about. Like, let me be a negotiator. Let me be of value to you. Because I, the last thing I want is that you lose a student. I can finish my studies. I delay things just because of something that you can maybe do something about, like give me a last minute federal, you know, uh, loan or grant so I can complete my studies and I'll pay you back. Right. Uh, I mean, this is all, now we can go all uh, the discussion about student loan debt in this country. Uh, but that's what I signed up for. It's like, give me more student loans so I can finish my studies. And actually they were like, let me give you a big grant and then a, a somewhat smaller loan and uh, you can pay it off later. And then I get to finish on time. Sounds like a plan. Okay, so it sounds like, you know, like with your with the with the circumstances of your dad passing and like you're you're going through all this in college, you're, you're in all these, you know, organizations. Sounds like you're a super ambitious person. Uh, what is your highest ambition in life? I don't have any ambitions. I mean, I'm, I'm, do I look like a man with a plan? Like that letter I sent to Columbia about, hey, uh, can you uh, help me out? I had no idea how that worked. I just sent a letter because I was desperate. I was sh literally shooting in the dark, blindfolded. Mm. I was peeing on the wall. 
just like seeing what would stick. I, it was like one of 20 different strategies. It was like, how do I pay for this? How do I pay for this? I tried diff, different loans and grants. And that was the one that stuck to the wall. And somebody was just like, let me help you because there is something called extenuating circumstances and you are a valuable member of our student you know, community. And, you know, I got news if I, that would have worked. I had no idea. I'm a dog chasing cars. I never plan. Like I just do things, right? I do things like, so, I mean, I do things like I plan sometimes that's part of doing something, but sometimes I plan without a plan. You know, I just like, let me just do 20 things at once and then email, 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 email. Just to basically send 20 emails out. Hopefully one of them will work out. And then that one stuck. It, it, it was nothing like I had a strategy and this will work. I was not brain and pink. I'm pinking, pinking the brain. Right? <laughs> I, I was a nickname. I had a, a, a best friend that was nicknamed brain and I was pinky because I literally was like, ah, I was just doing everything. And I was definitely not brain where I was like, this will work. I never thought that way I mean, because most of the things I did never worked, but you don't know about that because we only talk about things that did work. Of course. Of course. I love it. Okay. Transitioning to education then, you know, being a part of all these uh, student council and everything. Uh, what do you think are, are like the two biggest challenges, you know, kids face today? Critical thinking and choosing what makes you uncomfortable, embracing what makes you uncomfortable, being comfortable what makes you uncomfortable. So we kind of gloss on number one. That's critical thinking. That's actually part of number two. Critical thinking is uncomfortable. Can you to give really an example? Crit example? Yeah. Can you give a life example of critical thinking? And critical, critical thinking is reading between the lines, seeing the man behind the man, woman behind the woman, person behind the person. It's really just seeing something and then trying to find the meaning behind it. So a good example is, let's take the pandemic. People are dying around me. Literally people going to cardiac arrest and my colleagues are intubated or on life support. Uh, I'm not adequately protected. I don't have enough PPE, personal protective equipment, because you know I'm reusing my mask that's eight days old when they're supposed to be just used once and be disposable. So I have an eight day old mask. People are all getting sick. I'm scared. Scared is a feeling. So if I didn't do critical thinking, being scared means okay, maybe I should stay home. And I'm per diem, by the way. So which means I choose when and where I want to work. Mm -hmm. If I don't want to work, I don't have to work. Like just right. like a bartender is like, you know what, today I don't need to work because that's how per diem works. I'm not a full-time contract, which means also it's not stable. So if I don't want to work, I don't get paid. Uh, full-time means you definitely get paid no matter what. If you get sick, you get sick pay and all that of protections. I don't have those protections. If I don't, if I don't want to work, I don't. I said, you know what, let me set out this pandemic. I could do that. That's me not critically thinking. But I have critical thinking. I saw, wait a minute, I'm scared. And I know that I lived my entire life of always being comfortable with what scares me. I made it a habit my entire life, ever since my dad died, or you know, better luck tomorrow in high school, to always choose the most difficult thing because that's that's something that I made a habit out of. I, I mean, I don't like brushing my teeth. I don't like going to the gym. I hate doing push-ups, but I do it, right? I do it. Not flexing or anything. Because <laughs> I have to think a little extra step to know that it's good for me. All right. It's, it's not I'm going by my feelings. So it's not about the feelings. It's about the meaning and the actionable things you can do because of that feeling. Fear, critical thinking means, oh, fear is fear. That people can hold me back and not do it. Or just, you know, I don't want to do push ups because I don't care to do it. Or fear can lead to something like courage. Oh, shoot. I want to be a brave person. I want to be a courageous person. Wait a minute, courage cannot exist without fear. If it didn't scare me, then it wouldn't be called courageous. I, I would do it and if it didn't scare me, people would be like, yo, dude, that's not courageous at all. It was easy, I could have done it. 
But if it scares you and you do it, that's when people say, oh, you're courageous. So I realized that being courageous, being the person that I, I strive to be requires me to have fear to go with it. So I was like, oh, instead of letting fear conquer me, let me use it as a fuel to do something else. The feeling is still the feeling. It's about reframing that feeling to do something that is productive. If you choose that, and then plenty of people will be like, no, you know, I have an immunocompromised, you know, compromised person at home that I don't want to get sick and I'm over overworked and I'm already sick. Maybe, you know, I'm afraid I should listen to that fear. Maybe I won't go to work today or maybe I won't skydive today, you know, or maybe I won't, you know, do all these things. It depends on the person. Um, but that's what critical thinking is. It's really just not just jumping by what you're feeling is, oh, that's what I feel and that's where I should do it. But it's also thinking behind that and going off of that. Thinking behind that and going off of that. I love it. I love it. All right, moving on to the last topic of the day, which is love. I like to dive into uh, love specifically, not relationship-wise, but love for our parents. Um, understanding that you lost your, your your dad at a young age and then is, is your mom still around? Is she have full-on Parkinson's now or what's going on? She's on Parkinson's. She's around. Okay. Um, you know, what... what would you would your relationship with your parents uh well how was your relationship with your parents going through high school like freshman year like growing up i mean it's very relatable where you have an, a parenting model where they give you all the physical security which i'm grateful and it's first of all problems right that i'm complaining about this but you know i have to be self-aware that's critical thinking being critical. self-aware yes. uh, that's another thing about critical thinking is that when you read something, you're like, is this a conspiracy theory or does this make sense? Or you really have to think about it. Wait a minute. Why are they writing this? Why is this happening? Uh, and then you understand that and you don't get duped in as believing everything that you read. And that's the thing with my parents. They didn't give me any emotional love. Right. If I had a crush on somebody, if I was upset about something, they never gave me that support and foundation to like process these feelings and get me to a better and healthier place. I had to like either suppress that, which is unhealthy, or, or what I did was actually keep a diary or journal. I wrote, I had to express it out somehow. I mean, you can tell from this recording that I don't suppress anything. So I don't need a journal anymore, but I still have one, right? It's called the monsoon diaries. Look at my handle. What does that say? Monsoon diaries. That diaries is a big deal because I've always kept a diary since I was in first kindergarten, fifth grade, like all this stuff. Like I wrote everything that came to my mind because my parents never gave that to me. And that's critical thinking. And when I looked at my parents, they gave me an education. They gave me a roof over my head. They fed me. They made sure food was on the table. I didn't have to worry about that. And that was their language of love. I had to critically think when I was growing up, I was like, ah, I can't believe they don't love me. Ah, nah, they don't feel like they love me. That's not critical thinking. That's just me being angry which is understandable. Then I have to be a self-aware and have critical think and embrace the uncomfortable, including the discomfort that my parents actually secretly loved me. I have to respect it, but in their own way, in their own language that I never said, because I never had kids. I hadn't, haven't had kids. I haven't put through school or education or cut their fruit for them up until, you know, until, until I do. But my parents were doing all those things and maybe they didn't have time to talk about these feelings, right? Maybe they never went through these feelings growing up in, you know, where my dad was in Taiwan or my mom was in Shanghai. My mom had me when she was 22. So she really never had a, a regular childhood, if you will, that I could, you know, that could let me you know, process these things. So that's was their, their version of love, but it didn't fit my love language. My love language is a lot more involving of emotions and, you know, talking about your emotions, not 
you know, repressing anything, as you can tell, and just being very honest and real in the moment where my parents were completely opposite, you know, always about doing things, taking care of someone and saying, hey, that's enough for you, right? But never really talking about your feelings and emotions. And I disagree with that. And, you know, we agree to disagree. And I respect their love for me, but it's not my love language. So that's love. It's complicated. It's literally a temporary form of insanity where you still love them despite them not loving in the right way. That's, that's, that's essentially how we learn about ourselves, being comfortable with the uncomfortable, embracing insanity, embracing that aspect of you realizing that human beings are not logical creatures. So when you think that you're going to do something or making a decision based on something, oh, it makes sense and it doesn't call it the way it did, consider is that were you being too logical about it or do you realize that human nature always does something that's based on an emotional reasoning, hence the whole pandemic you know, debate that you see all the time. Well, should we go out? Should we stay in? Do we kill people? Do we not kill people? Do we, you know, I don't believe in this. I don't believe in that. These are all emotions. And people would make a decision based on emotions because emotions have to do with love. Love for a family, love for yourself, love for this certain way of living, freedom, whatever it is that you believe in. That's a different kind of love. That's that's human emotions. And it's not supposed to be logical. And you have to take that into account, right? And then that goes back to where you are right now with your family and your loved ones is that the things that you try to do that navigate through this pathway and this this thing called love, the safest thing and the bravest thing, they can they don't have to be mutually exclusive, is to have no expectations. Is to have zero expectations. That's that really means critical thinking and embracing what's uncomfortable because expectations is comfortable. I have things to check box off. Oh, I plan everything. That's comfortable. I have a plan. That's comfortable. Having no expectations for a human being is uncomfortable because you never know what's going to happen. They could cheat on me. They can turn on me. They can abandon me, whatever. But because of having no expectations, it can have the opposite effect of something that happened you never realized because that's life when things unexpected happen. But because you lived an entire life of making a habit of always preparing for the unexpected because you critically thought about it, you plan for the unplannable. Then when it does happen, a traumatic event, somebody dies, a funeral that you have to plan, a pandemic, I have to live my life. You're ready for it because you were never ready for it. Does that make sense? Yes, ready for it because you were never ready for it. Critical thinking, that is the main theme of today's chat. Tell us, you shared so much knowledge uh, for the youth today. Uh, what is a $100 million problem? Nope, you froze. It could solve for you. What is the hundred? Yes. What can you hear me now? Yeah. What is a hundred million dollar problem that you have in your life that if a community member solved for you, you'd make a hundred million dollars? Oh, if I could fix it, I would receive a hundred million dollars. Is that the question? Yeah, like a like. Yeah, essentially, what's like the biggest problem in your life right now that someone could help you with? In my life, I there the biggest problem is that I need more problems. <laughs> like I've always run towards problems if anything i'm the guy that runs towards the fire my life is an emergency doctor is to run towards emergencies i li right. have a travel blog creating uh sorry yeah you froze okay can you can you repeat your answer sorry uh, what is the biggest problem that i have in my life right now is that i run towards problems i run towards emergencies if i see a fire i run towards it i don't run away from it because i spent my entire life embracing that ever since my dad died Right, so we go back to ring theory. My dad died. That was part of the worst summers of my life. But if you read my Zanga entries that I still have up right now, it was also the best summer of my life. 
It was the only summer where people literally came in and saved my life, put me on suicide watch, washed after me, became my new family. I learned how to live by myself. I learned how to become myself and be real with myself and be honest. And my life turned around that day and this, as terrible as that summer was, and it, it was a bad summer, it was also the best one. And that's, ever since then, I realized that that's what life is all about. It's not about why me, why me, why me? It's really about why not me? Mm. And therefore, if that's the case, then I should always, instead of letting life kick me in the ass, take control of life and run towards kicking or being getting my ass kicked over and over and over again, so that when it does happen like a pandemic, I'm ready and prepared for it emotionally. No one's really ready for a pandemic, but at least emotionally, I spent my entire life conditioning for it. So that's that's my problem, I guess. I, I it's it's that I I want to you know always try to fix things when they come, and you know the way I run my travel blog is the people. So many people have signed up for my travel company, even against my will. I love solo traveling. I hate taking people along, but I've, the last eight years I've taken thousands of people on my trips because I love it because it's such a challenge. Yeah, I, you know, it's just like working out in the gym or doing push-ups or brushing my teeth. Like, I prefer solo traveling. It's much easier. But I didn't sign up in this life to be easy, right? Just to live an easy life. I want to take care of people because that is the challenge, and it, the rewards are even more bountiful than just doing it alone. Because it's always more fun to have co-pilots. And but if you want like a practical solution, if I like to fix anything in the world, it's intersectionality and coalition building. If we can put aside our differences and work together as communities, black and brown communities, queer, disabled, women, religious, whatever they may be, then we can be much stronger than we were uh, before because the status quo maintains their power only by dividing and conquering us. And if we are bickering against among one another, oh, who's doing the right activism? Are oh, you doing this wrong? You're doing that wrong. Then we'll never win. If people can actually critically think and look back and realize that the Black Panther movement was helped by the Asian Americans and the Asian Americans only got their civil rights based on the struggles of the black and brown movements of the civil rights organizations of the 1960s. Like your right to vote and live in this country was because of the black community in the 60s that worked their asses off and some who died just to get a civil rights law passed so that you and I can be here right, right. now. And vice versa. The reason why we fought for U.S. citizens for you know people who were born out of this country and then had naturalized citizenship because of Asian Americans in San Francisco that fought for the right to be declared as U.S. citizens by being born in this country in the face of the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act. Right? We've all worked together in the past. They don't teach us this stuff, right? And if we did learn all this stuff, there'll be less bullying, less intercommunity strife, less anger, and we'd be working together. Because we should be, and that's how we win, and that's how we create progress and change the status quo for the better. Otherwise, by dividing and conquering, that's how they always win. That's how South Africa and the apartheid, that's how India between Muslims and Hindus before the British came along. Like They were all coexisting peacefully, relatively, before a dominator came in and said, hey, everyone, you know, there is a hierarchy. You, you know, good luck climbing the ladder. And then everyone started fighting against each other, and we were shoot, you know, shooting each other's on the foot. And who guessed who stayed in power? Right. So this gives you an example of critical thinking. It's like other stuff did not, I didn't care for this stuff at all growing up. I cared about why am I not making your friends? Why don't I have a girlfriend? And, you know, when am I going to, you know, be noticed? This is me as 11, 10 year old, 12 year old. And I was very selfish, but all this stuff really does make a profound impact on why I was the 10, 11 year old frustrated chump 
was because all these people were holding me back by telling me what I can and cannot do, what I should and should not do, Asians shouldn't do this, Asians shouldn't do that, because of an institutionalized racism that was created by the history of people that long to are long dead, who created these structures for you to now inhabit. And you're going through it and not realizing why it's all you know, happening, but you realize once you do start thinking about it and researching, that it's all arbitrary. Some dead white institution decided this. They're no longer there around, but they totally switched, switched, swapped on you because of the decree, just like money, right? Money being whatever value assigned a piece of paper, the same idea with how you assign your identity. You can change that. I love it. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Monsoon Diaries, give them a follow. Thank you guys for watching. Before I forget, 88 Real Estate Media is looking for members to join the Oversight Committee to build the best mindfulness school in Southern California. Uh, shoot us a message if you want to learn more. And also, if you do business in the real estate industry, please do consider hiring us. Uh, Mr. Calvin, do you have any last words? Where, you know, plugs. What do you want to, what do you want, where do you want people to find you, you know, email you? So uh, we try to fit literally three hours of info and content. This is what usually how long it takes me when I do these public speaking gigs into literally 35 minutes. So if your head is spinning, but you don't know what I quite said, that's normal. In fact, you probably may not remember anything I just said when you wake up tomorrow morning. And that's normal. That's fine because this took me years to figure out. And you're never going to remember what anyone says. No one's going to remember a public speaker, what they say afterwards. But if I made you feel something, your head is spinning, but you felt something, hold on to that because that's going to endure. But it's only going to mean something. Remember, it's just a feeling. It's just a feeling. But it's going to mean something, create productive action if you hold on to it and focus on it and keep the momentum going, which means finding a mentor to talk about this stuff or creating some lifestyle habits that keeps you mindful of these emotions that you may be feeling right now that you know, from the words I've said, or even keeping in touch with any of us, either of us. Sounds like Bob here knows exactly what I'm talking about. So he's, he could be a good one. I don't mean to blow up your spot there, but I'm sure you're, you're making yourself available. But also I put my handle right here as you can message me too. everyone who knows me on Instagram, my 20, I was, I think I'm not, not to flex it, 28,000 followers that I got in the last month from this COVID-19 thing. Uh, they know I respond to everything as long as you're not being a jerk. But I will respond to everything. I'm happy to keep the momentum going. Otherwise, it has to be on you and yourself. But we're here to pick you up where you fall. So it's this is my Instagram, my Twitter, which I don't really use that much, but fine. Uh, Facebook. And just put this, .com is my website. You can many different ways of reaching me. I'll respond to it all if I can, as long as you're not being a jerk and you know taking out too much. But no, most people don't. And uh, yeah, keep the momentum going because that's the only way you can change because it's not going to happen overnight. Like this pandemic is a marathon. I love it. I love it. Guys, it's a monsoon. Mr. Calvin, thank you for sharing so much today. Obviously, yes, the community hotline was made for the community by the community. If you need any more tips on anything, obviously feel free to reach out. Other than that, have a great day and we'll see you guys next time.